Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, and wishing everyone a very happy Lunar New Year. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Wall Street had its best day in two weeks on a Friday tech rally, even as tech firms cut jobs and hopes grow that the Federal Reserve's next rate rise will be a small one, about a quarter percent. Concern in Washington is growing that the nation will default on its debt unless House Republicans refusing to raise the borrowing limit, uh, demanding more government-wide spending cuts, and the White House strike a deal. Despite pressure, Germany still won't send Leopard tanks to Ukraine, nor allow allies that operate the capable combat vehicle to do the same, raising worries about Berlin's reliability as an arms export partner. NASA and Boeing are partnered on a new transonic trust wing aircraft to test future airliner technologies, supply chains, China and air travel, and the outlook for Boeing's F-15 EX fighter now that Israel wants 25 of the jets. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Uh, but before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Securities sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And Leonardo DRS, HII, and GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company, sponsored our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium outside Washington, D.C. Guys, welcome back to the program. Sash, uh, thanks so much again for joining us. We missed you last week, but glad you're aboard uh, this week. Ron, start us off, uh, as you always do, quick take on the week, how the group performed, and how uh, the entire debt debate in Washington is playing on uh, markets, because markets are the thing that drove the Budget Control Act. Uh, bad as it was, uh, America's credit rating still hasn't really recovered from that, unfortunately. Uh, and, you know, it's one of those unmodelable scenarios. We've been discussing this both on the Washington Roundtable for months, uh, as well as uh, the as well as this program. Walk us through the week and the dynamic factors shaping it for the group. Yeah, I mean, that that really hasn't been a big factor, at least not in equity markets. Uh, on the week, the S&P was roughly flat. It was off about uh, 60 basis points. Uh, when you look at the aerospace and defense group, uh, most of the stocks were off. Uh, if you go through the big ones, you know, Boeing was down about three and a half percent, Northrop uh, just over two, Lockheed about one and a half percent, GD three percent, Raytheon four and a half percent. The big champ on the week was Bombardier. It was up about seven and a half percent. They did a debt refinancing and uh, announced uh, some of their earnings early. The revenue was better than what consensus was looking for. So were deliveries and presumably uh, their operating profits. So it was, was up on that. Uh, crude prices have been trickling higher. Uh, WTI was around 82. Brent was uh, close to 88. Uh, the 10-year yield has been holding around 3.5% now for a couple of weeks. And the VIX has been bouncing around 20, which is the lower end of the range that it has been. It's been kind of in that 20 to 30 range. So it's been at the lower end of that range. And I would say, you know, kind of the, the broader debate on the street is uh, more around recession, what it's going to look like, and so on and so forth. Um, if you look at most of the big bank earnings this week, they were you know, suggesting that you're, you're, you're starting to see a slowdown. And, uh, and it's always this debate, you know, is it a soft landing, is it a hard landing, so on and so forth. Um, uh, and I think that's what people, people are focused on. I don't think, 
Uh, I can't speak for the market, but I don't think uh, that the street has really contemplated a U.S. debt default. Uh, I mean, I would imagine that's one of those things that uh, the market will start to discount in kind of at the last minute when headlines start flying and things really get tense. But um, until then, um, it really hasn't been the focus, at least not at the equity market. Well, I mean, the terrifying thing last time around, uh, and I know you and I were having some of these conversations, was was when you know banks started to bet against the market, right? And then and then that's what starts to become kind of a real problematic thing, and and the downgrade snapped everybody out of it. We can be in extraordinary measures until June uh, or so, um, and, and so it's not it's not immediately looming. But if I was a smart investor, that would be waiting somewhere somewhere in the back of my mind, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I still, again, I can't speak for the market. And this is just right. Ron's opinion. I'm not speaking for the bank, but uh, I don't think anybody really believes that the U.S. is going to default on debt. Uh, just because if you look at the cohort of countries that typically do that, the U.S. is usually not in that cohort. Um, right. You know, who knows? Things could change. But uh, yeah. I think I think that's where the mind of the market is. Yeah, exactly. The 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 market's like, well, it's never happened before. Uh, but there's always a first time for everything. Uh, the the cynic observes. Um, Sash, uh, welcome back. I'm sorry you couldn't join us last week, but it's a pleasure having you back on again this week. Uh, walk us through what some of the dynamic factors were uh, in Europe uh, in terms of uh, performance. We're going to talk about uh, Germany uh, in a little bit uh, and and what the reluctance. Uh, from Berlin on Leopard uh, means, but talk to us sort of more broadly in terms of market performance, uh, both those, both this week and last, uh, that you think were interesting and noteworthy. Yeah, okay. I mean, look, yeah, uh, it's a pleasure to be back. Actually, European stocks had a pretty good week. Pretty much every single one in our coverage was up uh, last week. But the ones that were up the the greatest tended to be the large, uh, the large cap, but actually a couple of the mid-cap defense stocks as well. And our reading of this would be, and we'll we'll come back to the whole um, uh, NATO summit or you know NATO meeting and, and Germany later. But that in general there has been a a realization among uh, investors that the defence play is going to last for much longer than people think. I mean, you remember all the way through last year, any time that there was a week where Ukraine was perceived to have performed very well militarily. Defence stocks got sold off by people who really who didn't know better, but arguably should have done on the basis that the war was going to be over, defence spending would stop, and you know peace would break out again. Well, I think last what we saw last week was the war is going to go on for some considerable time this year. Uh, the issue of can the NATO uh, countries provide enough military aid fast enough is very very important. But none of this is going to stop the you know the broader defence spending. Uh, issues from um, uh, occurring. And so, you know, I'm just looking at the stocks, you know, BA Systems, uh, Talis, um, Rheinmetall, um, Hensolt, all had, and actually, you know, uh, Leonardo, all were up, you know, two, three percent on the week. And that was a good performance in the context of, of the rest of the market. And that, you know, they stood out against the the civil stocks that were broadly flat. I mean, in fact, they you know they, they were up, but they were you know up a, a, a percent or or so, no more than that. And they, it was really quite a strong um, gap out between defence and civil last week. And uh, you know, I think I think you know we'll come back and talk about Germany, but I think that was the catalyst. Uh, Richard, uh, your uh, sense, right? I mean, uh, Lunar New Year, very very big travel time, a lot of concerns. Uh, obviously, that this is 
you know, that it's going to be devastating in China. And we've seen very high fatality rates, fatality rates that are a lot higher than the, the reported numbers. On the other hand, you know, there's this sense that China is going to come charging back uh, after this. Uh, what do some of the figures that you're looking for in terms of travel tell us uh, about, you know, folks in some cases kind of getting back to normal? Well, you know, it's uh, way too soon to declare victory in China. And again, you know, China is really the only outstanding market that isn't in a very solid position for recovery and making good progress. It's it's really all about China. And of course, related, um, I suppose, what you could call travel contagion in Asia related to China. You know, December air traffic, what we've seen is about uh, 70 something percent below 2019 levels. So that's awful. But, you know, big improvement. And more importantly, one of the key metrics to watch is, uh, you know, capacity that's put in place for January. And they're expecting kind of a monster recovery in January, you know, something like just down by a quarter relative to 2019. So they're looking at a huge comeback. I, I, you know, and yes, the fatalities have been there. And I, I think the bigger read through from this capacity edition, coupled with a, a lack of any shutdowns or anything like that, is they're like, okay, we're going to see some dead people. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it's sort of a bizarre view of the world, but they appear to be very comfortable with the idea of deaths with bodies just sort of piled somewhere. Um, no action taken, no blame given to the party or anybody, uh, no emergency measures like opening borders to vaccines or anything like that. It's just, okay, we better catch up with the rest of the world, despite the lack of A, useful vaccines, B, immunity. Um, so we're just going to get back. So until uh, something changes, that is to say, until all of a sudden they say, oh, God, we can't take the pain and we don't look very good until that it looks like the traffic recovery looks an awful lot in terms of the curve, like what it did back in 2021 when China was way ahead of the world in getting back into the air. So, um, uh, you know, terrible death count uh, notwithstanding, uh, the news is good for the air travel recovery on that front. Uh, you know, uh, look, I mean, if you have a country of 1.4 billion people and human life might not be considered as precious, uh, right? Tens of millions died uh, under Mao Zedong's rule. I mean, the last time China's population dropped was back then uh, through man-made uh, famines. Um, so, you know, uh, you, yeah. you know, maybe maybe it is a philosophy of, well, I mean, if you want to make some omelets, you got to break some eggs and, and we got to move on. Let's rip the Band-Aid off. Right. And indeed, uh, the news came out this week that demographically things were just as bad that they're, you know, for the first time since the great leap forward, which results, in, as you say, I think 36 million or something like that deaths. This is the first time that their uh, their population has shrunk. So I think they're prepared to live in a world where either, you know, in order to get wealthier in aggregate, you have to uh, maybe shrink a little and, and see some suffering. Uh, so that's that's the fact of life over there. Ron, Ron and Sash, anything uh, you guys want to add before we move to the conversation about whether or not Boeing is going to manage to use a NASA con? I mean, first, what the transonic truss wing uh, setup really means. Fortunately, we have a, a PhD aerodynamicist and, uh, and engineer uh, on the team. Uh, also, my sort of suspicion that Boeing may want somebody else to pay for it because all the big primes um, want to talk about investment, but want to have somebody else pay for it, whether it's a outside VC group or, or what have you, but any, any commentary on uh, China air traffic and, and what this is going to look like. Uh, and as well as supply chain that's playing into this, right? Uh, because at the end of the day, the, the manufacturers still are having 
uh, some some challenges. Ron, want to lead us off on that and Sash, get your take? Yeah, I mean, the, I think the, the big news about China coming back, there's a, there's a couple things, right? Uh, was it maybe two weeks ago, uh, a couple 737 Maxes went back into service uh, in, in China. Uh, and that was you know, considered as a step forward. Uh, makes sense if, you know, if domestic travel is going to be picking up. But more importantly, um, what it means for the global aftermarket in terms of maintenance, repair, overhaul, spare parts. Um, you know, China's what, roughly 20% of world traffic, if I'm doing my numbers right. Um, so that's a nice um, tailwind to, uh, <clears throat> to the aftermarket. So um, it just kind of bolsters the case for the aftermarket into, into this year in an already tight world with supply chains and so on and so forth. And then on the supply chain front, when you think about uh, China uh, and supply chains, ultimately they're not that big a supplier into civil aerospace. So you know, the tightness we've seen there um, isn't that big a deal with the exception of microprocessors. And when you look at just sort of, what do you want to call it? Run of the mill microprocessors, not the super small ones, just the microprocessors that you might find in a car or refrigerator or air conditioner. Uh, some of the uh, sort of just sort of standard microprocessors. China is an important part of that supply chain. Um, and it's, you know, that that has been an issue and still is an issue uh, for anybody that depends on sort of that kind of standard uh, uh, microprocessor. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But, um, you know, the expectation is that's going to remain tight probably well into 2024. Sash? China's very important because, I mean, yeah, you know, but it's the last major market to recover. It's the last market that is, you know, double digits. In fact, you know, multiples of tens of percent below its pre-pandemic level. Um, every other market is either back to it, uh, pre-pandemic levels or, or you know, within a advanced risk uh, thereof. Um, so, you know, this really is the, is the market that, that has to drive global aviation over the next um next couple of years or so with its recovery, because most of the other markets will be trending back to some relatively low multiple of GDP growth. Uh, and therefore, you know, if you're worried about um, recession and if we think that uh, the, um, you know, the, the post-pandemic catch-up of uh, travel is over, China really is the most important market, I think, you know, in our view for 2023, 2024, in terms of keeping civil aerospace demand up. Now, there is then the broader issue of actually whether the aftermarket and whether the supply base is up to it or not. Uh, and I suspect we're going to come back to that multiple times this year. But you know, th- th- this is it's very important, quite, quite how big an outlier China is in terms of its lack of recovery from COVID compared to pretty much everywhere else. Richard, do you want to have 777 commentary here uh, really quickly, right? Flight, flight test of the 777X, uh, which was successful. Yeah, um, it, obviously they had been flying it back until uh, about last summer, and then there was a bit of a hiatus, particularly for this article, um, I think after August. So taking a two-hour test flight was significant back, uh, I believe it was also the summer of folks, uh, including Ron, had uh, speculated on word rumors, Steve Verhazi had too, that uh, the program might be canceled altogether. And it's, it's, it's one thing to speculate, but it's another thing when the CEO says absolutely nothing to reinforce confidence in it. So there was that kind of dark cloud hanging over it. As long as we can remember, I think within our, you know, five, seven year time horizon, the order book's been stuck at about 350 jets. You have this terrible market cataclysm and all kinds of delays and overruns multi-year 
course and possibly even slipping from 2025, the current expectation. So it's understandable that there were rumors, but again, why that wasn't damped down is a bit of a mystery. At least we have a two hour flight to say, okay, maybe they're getting back on track and hope for the best. Ron, um, I want to go to you and get just a quick update on uh, Boeing production uh, challenges, issues, right? I mean, uh, Richard just mentioned uh, the 777X, right? I mean, so if they're pushing ahead with development, that's got to be a vote of confidence. Uh, 737 MAX uh, appears to be coming out of its uh, challenges. It got the extension, certification extension uh, from Congress. Uh, and, you know, in a piece of history, 747-8, uh, end of the line for the queen of the skies, uh, is is right around the corner. Where where are we? And, and there were the 787 production problems we were facing uh, as well. I mean, where how do you assess where the company is right now, health wise? If you kind of look across the programs, um, they're stabilizing production still on uh, the 737 Max program. Uh, they delivered a, a bunch of airplanes in December. A lot of those were you know airplanes that were already slated for delivery that didn't get delivered earlier in the year. Uh, but, you know, the goal is to get, you know, stable at 31 per month on the line and then, you know, you know raise it from there. Uh, so, you know, the MAX 8 is going the right direction. The MAX 7, uh, the expectation is that it will get certified at some point this year, maybe mid-year. Uh, the MAX 10 at some point, uh, probably in 2024, it, it will get certified. Um, you know, MAX 9s, um, you know, it's already certified. They're, you know, delivering some of those as well. Uh, on 787, um, I believe the production line is paused again uh, on that program. Uh, they'll probably give more indication of what's going on there when they report this upcoming week. Uh, so we'll we'll see what happens. They still have you know many many or close to 100, uh, maybe closer to 80 now. Um, 787s in inventory uh, that they can deliver from. So they they'll be busy doing that uh, as they sort out what's going on on the line. Uh, and then don't forget, I mean, 76s are still being delivered for. Uh, to the military side of the company for uh, tanker and also for um, uh, for freighter purposes as well. So um, things are you know plodding along, um, and uh, you know the the deliveries in the end of the year were uh, you know a nice uh, boost. But we'll see ultimately where you know January deliveries play out and then how it all plays out for the year. NASA gave Boeing a contract for a transonic truss braced wing uh, to demonstrate technologies for airliners in the 2030s and uh, beyond. Um, we've been wondering what the delay is, uh, and the uh, Boeing CEO, Dave Calhoun, has suggested, well, we don't know what the technology in the future is going to be. Is, is this sort of a, you know, every one of the major contractors look like it's looking outside as opposed to doing its own independent research and development. Uh, L3 Harris has partnered with Shield Capital. Uh, Lockheed is talking about increasingly looking outside to innovative partnerships uh, to bring technology into the company as opposed to doing it the old fashioned way, which is spending a lot of its own money internally uh, to develop stuff. Is this a first, I mean, what what about the technology is interesting? Uh, I mean, is, is it a future? Uh, and second, is Boeing going to try to get everybody else to pay for it ultimately? And is that a, a workable uh, scenario, uh, a workable strategy? Let's put it that way. And happy to go quickly around the horn to get everybody's uh, sense on this. I'm not saying that NASA is going to pay to develop an airplane from scratch, uh, but um, you know what this portends and what this trend maybe more broadly means, uh, and and whether Boeing's going to try to figure out a way to to try to do that, right? Develop a new airplane and not pay for it. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, developing an airplane and not pay for it. No, I mean, that that is, uh, I think, a, a non-starter. Um, you know, the, the transonic truss-based wing 
technology has been around for a long time. Um, it's been something that you know Boeing has worked on uh, in the past. I think if you go back at least ten years, maybe fifteen years with NASA. So you know this this didn't just come out of the blue, right? This uh, um, you know was was kind of kind of expected and under. Uh, you know the the Biden administration's uh, new uh, environment environmental uh, law. Forget me, I forget the exact name of it, but I mean this kind of essentially got funded by that. You know, so what you know what is a transonic truss-based wing? It's a really really high aspect ratio wing. You know, think a really long uh, and skinny wing. Um, that's going to be because of it being very very high aspect ratio, ultimately pretty flexible. So you've got a truss, you have to brace it with some trusses to right. kind of hold it steady. Those trusses will also um, carry some lift in any time you put one lifting body or a lifting structure near another one, they interact with each other. And that's sort of where it gets a little more complicated. Uh, and transonic is what it says, right? I mean, you'll be, you know, you have areas of, of, of the wing that will be, you know, close to supersonic, uh, which happens anyway. Um, so, so it's just not low subsonic. Um, is this the you know the the base technology of a new aircraft? No, it's not. Um, you know, it's an MD eighty tube that they're modifying. Um, right. Is it a nice science experiment? Yes. Are there technologies that could spin off of this and end up on a new airplane? Absolutely. Right. So I mean, the way I would think about this is maybe a a, a technology test bed. It's still uncertain exactly who's going to provide the propulsion system and so on and so forth. Uh, they're saying maybe 30% better operating efficiency, but that would include the engine, which is always a big piece of it. Um, and that that part doesn't have clarity on it yet. So, you know, I, I'd look at this as a as a technology development thing being funded by the government, just like the European Union does with with, with Airbus. Um, but it's it's not not going to be the base of a new program. And um, and it's it's hard to imagine that NASA would be funding the development of a new airplane. And even if they did, given all the bureaucrat bureaucracy and so on and so forth with NASA and the government, it's hardly a good way to develop a plane. Does it reinforce or validate Dave Calhoun's go slow strategy that we have criticized, right? I mean, is there, whether in the investment community or elsewhere, does this seem to validate and say, hey, you know, there could be some interesting technologies out there and it may be more prudent to, to give it a pause before uh, moving Ahead. No, I don't think it does at all. I mean, this is just an opportunity to get some uh, free money from the government because a law was put in place that offered free money. And it'd be right. foolish not to go after it, right? So, you know, good for them that, you know, they're, you know, an opportunity popped up and, you know, they're taking, you know, taking advantage is the wrong word, but using it as an opportunity to do some technology development, that's great. Um, but I, I don't think it, you know, it, it validates the strategy or not because ultimately in the end, I mean, the, the change will be the propulsion system. Um, it's not going to be how you do the layout of the wings or, or, or whatever. Um, and um, the propulsion stuff is still, you know, kind of, you know, the Wild West. And I, I can say with probably close to 100% um, uh, confidence that, in, you know, here we sit in 2023 and 2033, we will not be flying around on hydrogen airplanes. A hydrogen, an engine that's powered by hydrogen with, you know, the, 30 to 50 to 100,000 pounds of thrust won't exist and so on and so forth. So in 10 years, we'll be talking about engine technology that's very similar to technology today, but but more efficient because engine technology typically gets, I don't know what, a half to a percent better year over year with the technology improvements that they've been doing. And that will continue into the future.
Um, Sash, I'm going to come to uh, you in a moment. But first, uh, a note, uh, check out our growing list of weekly podcasts, Canvas Ships, hosted by Chris Canvas and Chris Cervello, uh, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with our very own Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host uh, with our new teammate, JJ uh, Gertler. Okay, Sash, uh, take it away in terms of your view uh, on n- not just, you know, Boeing, NASA, but sort of more broadly, this trend of, of sort of leaning increasingly on external capital as opposed to internal capital to develop research, to develop technology and, and, and basically the, the seed corn of the future. Yeah, okay. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll start. I just want to pick up on a comment that, that Ron made. I mean, I wish the European Union, I mean, as a European, I wish the European Union did hand out uh, you know, development contracts like this. The, the European Union does some basic research, but it's very, very, it's slow and it's inefficient. Um, and, you know, Airbus succeeded because it got big, um, not just uh, R&D um, contracts, but effectively it got big uh, development uh, risk-sharing investments from, from its partner governments. And then, of course, um, we had 25 years of WTO um, cases from the US against state aid and uh, all of that stopped. Um, I think that what this, uh, this, you know, I'm all in favor of state aid. I think that's how civil aerospace works. And if states, you know, nations wants to get to net zero in civil aerospace, they're going to have to put a ton of money into it because the companies can't afford it and the companies won't get there fast enough. And net zero by 2050, I don't think the the con that is uh, so-called sustainable aviation fuels will actually you know, work um, over the next 30 years. It's going to be very apparent that they still produce exactly the greenhouse gases that are um, uh, you, you, that need to be stopped. So I'm all in favour of state aid. I think this is a wonderful example of it. I think this will probably start or restart um, the arms race, whether that then uh, stimulates uh, money from the EU, more likely, I think, from France, Germany, Spain, UK, uh, certainly to, uh, to start off. Um, so, so be it. But I think that's going to be how some of the basic technologies of the next couple of years or the, the next decade or so are funded. Um, more broadly, how do you fund uh, you know, uh, R&D as a company? I think the idea that you go to venture capital uh, or indeed any uh, capital source is absolutely preposterous. Um, any capitalist is going to want a return on their R&D. The whole point of R&D is that you spend money not knowing whether it's necessarily going to succeed, and the returns are a hell of a long way out. So um, if you get somebody to, to, you know, to, to fund some uh, basic R&D uh, from venture capital, the return they are going to ask for is going to be in double digits, and it's going to probably um, turn whatever that product is from being commercially successful, but 10 to 15 years out, into being uh, commercially unsuccessful because you've got to be paying a 10, 15% IRR uh, to, that, uh, to that capital. So I think it's, I think it's an a insane proposition. If R&D is worth doing, go to your shareholders and, do, and explain to your shareholders why you are going to do it and then do it. And there have been some fantastic examples of companies on both sides of the Atlantic doing self-funded R&D and it working. Um, Raytheon with um, active e-scan radar being probably the classic example uh, in the US over the last 25 years or so. Um, 
But I think, you know, going to a venture capitalist is, uh, I would shudder if I saw a company do that. It's uh, two stop, uh, two stops past barking, uh, as I think your great people uh, would say. Uh, uh, thank you. I'm here all week, uh, uh, Richard. Uh, want to get want to get your uh, sense uh, on this uh, before uh, coming back actually to you, Sash, uh, to talk about Germany and exports because I think that's very important, and we have to talk about F15 uh, as well, uh, the immortal F15, as as Richard put it in our in our little dis- discussion, uh, and then and then uh, go go to Ron and get a sense on what we should expect from earnings that start uh, next next week. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, um, I certainly won't second guess uh, Ron on the um, the technological desirability or feasibility of a of a, of a trust based way. What I, what I think is really interesting is you've got this cash that's going into um, the Inflation Reduction Act, all this other stuff. I mean, the green agenda, like it or loathe it, is uh, what like it's it's in the hundreds of billions in funding. Uh, the aviation industry, of course, is part of that hydrocarbon burning economy, only two and a half percent now, but a lot of the rest of the economy begins to or accelerates decarbonization. We're going to be double digits as a percent of the total within, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years. I'm not I'm not going to say we need this, we want this, but it would be terrible. So this might be a harbinger of something good. I, 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 uh, I agree with uh, with Sash. It's, it's not optimal, but um, on the other hand, it's perhaps inevitable. I mean, the commercial directorate of NASA for years has not had very much money to play with at all. And a lot of it has gone to things like, ooh, quiet supersonic or air taxis or whatever else. The idea of putting it into um, you know, a, a, a more efficient commercial jetliner, that seems welcome to me. And I'll disagree with Sash. You know, certainly the French have been ramping up cash, obviously, during the pandemic. You know, you had that hydrocarbon thing. I, you know, they claimed a billion and a half euros, probably not, but you know, look, it was it was a ramping up of technology development spending in the commercial aerospace arena. Both sides are going to do that. What is intriguing is if you see a higher percentage of the monster cash being spent, especially now in the US, uh, going to um, you know, commercial aero. That would be, if not a game changer, then a, a significant uh, change. Good, certainly a good way to em- employ commercial aviation engineers who Boeing is currently not doing a great job of employing. So I think it's more positive than negative. And, and I'm intrigued to see what happens next. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing because, you know, when you said monster cash, I was seeing like a monster truck rally, but just with <laughs> like cash blowers and, you know, guys burning up massive amounts of money. Money fight. Uh, <laughs> Money fight, exactly. And, and people going like, wow, that was a million dollars up in smoke. Uh, so uh, at least more entertaining uh, than at least some of these uh, uh, companies that are better stories uh, chasing money than, than technology or reality, sadly. Um, Sash, uh, allies have been putting it. Uh, Ron, is there anything you want to add to this before we, we move to the exports uh, and Germany? Bit of the discussion. Yeah, so maybe one thing I would add is if you know if a company is going to kind of focus on um, venture capital for its um, uh, you know, development of you know you know R and D uh, programs, I, I I agree with Sash. I mean, it's just you know a hundred percent. I mean, it's that um, it doesn't seem like a very effective way to do it. Uh, further, I would add, however, um, if you look at most U.S. defense companies, the amount of money that they actually fund uh, R&D, and they've been criticized for this, as you know, for a very long time by uh, the Department of Defense. Um, and I would argue they're not really incented to do it. That's why they don't. 
Um, they don't spend a heck of a lot of money on R&D anyway, on, right. on defense programs, right? I mean, most of it at some point, somehow, some way is refunded by the DOD. Um, so I don't know. I mean, is it really that big a change? I would argue probably not, but um, is it optimal? No, but it is what it is. Well, right on an equivalent basis, Lockheed is spending, uh, again, not not critical, but I'm just going purely off memory. So Ron, you know this better than I do, about a percentage, uh, 1%. Yeah, about uh, a percent. Less, yep, that's about right. right? Uh, whereas uh, speaking for our friends at Dassault, they're more like 20% uh, goes into uh, R&D. You know, obviously the company is in a much more competitive position uh, when, whether it's on business jets or anything else. So it just gives but, you but some would, order but, of magnitude. But I would argue this, right? I mean, the companies just react to the incentives that are out there. Right. Um, and, you know, an interesting case in point is General Dynamics. And I think if you look to General Dynamics, what they spend on their true defense side on company-funded R&D, um, it's an eensy-weensy amount. Uh, but if you look at what Gulfstream spends on R&D, it's actually a lot. Um, you know, my, my sense is, and they don't fully disclose it, but my, my sense is it's somewhere around 10% of sales at Gulfstream every year is spent on product development year in and year out and year in and year out. And if you look at the cadence of product development and how successful um, Gulfstream has been managing the brand and so on and so forth, um, they have an incentive to do so. Uh, but if you're talking about, I don't know, land vehicles, where's the incentive to do it there? Um, and if the right incentives are in place, I would argue that defense companies would actually spend the money. But, you know, we could talk about this for hours. I mean, it's just a really complicated equation to get those right incentives in place. Uh, again, I mean, uh, at, at the end of the day, the government, through thoughtful contracting, can shape uh, the outcomes that it wants. Uh, and you know, the, the better we are at writing those contracts and driving those outcomes, uh, the better everybody will be. Running short on time, Sash, uh, uh, allies have been putting enormous pressure on Berlin uh, to clear uh, the Leopard tank for export to Ukraine, whether from Germany or its allies. Uh, Denmark eager to send its Leopards. Uh, Germany is demanding Washington first send M1s to Ukraine, which the White House and the Pentagon, I think, rightly maintain isn't the right tank for uh, Kiev. It is one of the greatest armored vehicles in history. But it is a very, um, you need a specific industrial structure uh, to, to do that, given the gas turbine power plant, whereas the Leopard is repairable in the field in a way that the Ukrainians would be able to do. More broadly, it raises questions that we've discussed on this program for a long time about Germany's reliability uh, as an export partner um, in, in collaborative uh, programs. Walk us through not just the specifics of something that is fracturing the alliance at a very important part, at a very important time, but more broadly, what does this tell us? You know, even if there's a Titan vendor and Germany gets the 2% of GDP, which will be very welcome because the country should be pulling its defense weight. Uh, and I have to credit Germany as well. Um, you know, the United States is number one in aid. The UK is number two. Number three is Germany. So Germany is up there in the, you know, leading aid contributors to, uh, to, to Ukraine. Walk us through what all of this means and how we need to think about it. And, and, and Richard, want to get your sense from a, uh, an export standpoint, uh, what does this suggest uh, uh, for the future of collaborative European programs if there's going to be a Germany that might just say no? The easy answer, Germany is not helping itself at all because um, Germany is uh, causing its NATO allies you know, effectively to gang up against it. And that, that's never a pleasant position to be in. And Germany is undermining its allies' confidence in its own position on, on defence broadly, not just defence exports. And that's the, that's the worrying thing. So, you know, on the one hand, you've got Seitenbender, you've got this commitment to 2% of GDP. 
if when they get there, fantastic. Although it will cause the UK and France to have real concerns because they will lose um, military, you know, relative power and influence in NATO. But that, you know, that's actually from NATO's point of view, that's a high quality problem to have. Let's deal with it, you know, when it happens. But the problem here is that Germany is not just refusing to export uh, tanks to Ukraine, which they, you know, they have the right to do, but they are refusing export licenses or end user licenses to countries that have already got uh, leopards and want to, to, to pass them on to Ukraine. And you know, some of our listeners may not be aware that um, when you buy a, you know, a piece of defense equipment from uh, you know, a major Western country, you buy it under an, an end user certificate, which says, you know, we, we're going to use it now, but we uh, you know, declare that if we're ever going to pass this on to somebody else, we'll come back to the original vendor, in the case of Leopard, Germany, and ask for permission to do that. And that, you know, that, that, that's fair dues, um, because otherwise, you know, you might get some slightly less scrupulous uh, nation, um, uh, you know, passing defense equipment on that they have acquired to a country that the uh, original vendor very definitely does not approve of. And everybody has worked under this system for, uh, for, for decades. But here's the problem. Uh, Germany is, it, it, you know, nobody would object if Germany just signed the end user certificates, but they're failing to do that. So it's not an issue of Germany won't export leopards, that's their right, but it's they won't let anybody else do it either. And that's why there is this real concern that Germany is not a reliable uh, ally when it, uh, when it comes to, uh, to defence. And frankly, being an ally when it comes to defence is pretty much all that matters at the moment. I would remind people that... Um, France and Germany had a brilliant pact that was signed in the early 1970s called the Schmidt-Debray Pact, which said, you know, effectively, if we are in a collaborative program, and at that time there were collaborative programs in helicopters and in missiles uh, in, in particular, but actually also in transport aircraft and, and the Alpha Jet, um, if we are in a collaborative program between France and Germany, a, um, an export customer for one will automatically be deemed to be an acceptable export customer for the other. So we, Germany, we, France, will not veto the other guy exporting things. Schmidt de Bray was a very, very clear, um, I think a brilliant example of how two countries going into um, a defense industrial pact with each other sign a sort of, a, a, you know, a, it's a side um, agreement of mutual trust. The problem is that Germany's broken it, um, and the French are clearly hopping about that, and I, I would be, because Schmidt de Bray was supposed to be a lasting pact, um, and Chancellor uh, Schmidt is just not, uh, Schultz rather, is, is not helping himself or Germany. Uh, and so I think what this is doing is causing a you know, bit of a crisis of, of confidence in European defence at the moment. Why are European defence stocks up this week? Precisely because of that. There's a feeling that you cannot, you know, you can't necessarily trust um, you know, NATO to, to finish the or you know finish the Ukraine war fast in terms of supplying defense equipment. So there's going to be this continued uh, stream of defense equipment going to Ukraine, and then the the back ordering that occurs. But also there's this feeling that NATO probably won't do a very good job of defending itself long term. So individual countries are going to have to spend more. Um, bad for their economies, good for their defense industries. Defense stocks go up. And I have to say that because both as a partner, it's eroding uh, confidence uh, in uh, among its allies. At the same time, the Titan vendor and the added spending 
is putting on edge uh, nations like France, who now worry the German military capability, you know, and what happens, ADF is growing, right? I mean, French have a tendency maybe leaning too far and too far future into the future, but it's interesting how it's rekindling um, fears we may not have seen in many, many decades uh, about a resurgent Germany, especially if the right wing in Germany is, is growing, as a French friend of mine uh, relatively recently put it to me. You know, it's like we, we, we've seen that play a couple of times through history, and we would be remiss if we didn't, you know, something didn't tickle in the back of our minds when we, when we see it, unfortunately. So this is, you know, sort of a double ended uh, challenge. We've got very few minutes uh, left and uh, we need to move on. Richard, if you want to add anything to this from a combat aircraft uh, standpoint, and then also give us your take uh, on the F-15 uh, Eagle. You know, four years ago, we were talking about this program being, um, you know, basically dead. U.S. Air Force ordered it. Now Israel is interested in it. And the Boeing guys always said, hey, there's a big F-15 community that would love to have new versions of this, you know, in a more capable version of the jet. And they might be right. Um, give us your sense on those real quick. And then Ron, bring us home with a quick look ahead on what we should expect from earnings. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, you know, uh, first of all, just on top of what Sash said about um, Germany as a, as a partner, uh, of course, and this is what has made the, you know, Franco-German FCAS program, I, I would argue the most ridiculous new aircraft program in, in decades, you know, because the entire point of developing and selling your French fighters, you never have to ask if you know, if you want the keys to use it, whereas obviously Germany, it's the extreme opposite exception. Of course, yes, a pity to the Germans or a sympathy or something. On the one hand, you know, there's these historical fears that make them understandably a little bit skittish about sending tanks to Central and Eastern Europe. That I, There was a wonderful story in the New York Times today about that, the historical fears, kind of, you know, a bit of a bit of a thumbsucker story, but eh, accurate. And then on the other hand, by not doing that, uh, they're making themselves completely unreliable partners in future programs. So just a bad place to be. And and I, if I were the French, I'd be looking to go their own way as they have historically and as they've done pretty well with, uh, as, uh, as Dassault's success reveals. The F-15, that's just a fascinating story. You know, the Air Force, of course, we're going to get 140-something. Now they're getting 80-something. Um, but in every other direction, it's been good news for the F-15. There was that rumor about, I believe, seven or eight months ago from an Air Force uh, official talking about negotiations with Egypt. Uh, there are certainly other countries that might be looking at another tranche. You know, I think one lesson we've had from Ukraine is that despite all the, you know, gee whiz bang footage of drones and whatever, the traditional methods of warfare and traditional ways of warfare have actually kind of reasserted themselves. So you've got a plane, an amazing design, half century old, of course, more than half century old, but its specialties include such traditional metrics as range, payload, time to climb, everything like that. And everyone's saying, oh yeah, you know, stealth and other things are, are great to have and important. And uh, God knows we love the sensor package on the F-35, but there's a lot to be said for range, payload, speed, time to climb, all that other stuff. And the F-15 looks pretty darn good. So the Air Force might not get more than 90, but a lot of other people I think are gonna take an, a hard look as the Israelis have. And uh, you could easily see another 15 years of F-15 production as a consequence. I would also note, however, that somehow Boeing only produced it one per month last year. So right. maybe it's a ramp up issue, maybe it's a supply chain issue. I don't know, but that's clearly going to bedevil things as it has the F-16 uh, returned to production. And it's uh, 2025 uh, that the Israelis are, are looking uh, for. Uh, Ron, any uh, quick commentary on it? Because you worked on the F-15, but also then real quick, what do you expect to hear from companies uh, when they start reporting next week? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the F-15 is it's a spectacular airplane, right? I mean, it's just, you know, it's a classic, right? And it's very, very capable. Um, and, uh, you know, if anything held it back over the years, it would be, I guess, electronic warfare systems and so on and so forth. So, I mean, if you can keep updating the dashboard and the electronics um, as a platform, um, you know, it's, it's not, you know, the most stealthy thing, but if you don't need a stealthy thing, it's a super capable airplane. Um, so I think that the Israelis have identified that, you know, for sure. Um, so, you know, it warms my heart to see uh, sales of the airplane continue. It's an airplane I worked on a lot when I was in the industry. Uh, so anyway, uh, you know, more power to it. Uh, on earnings, um, a couple things broadly, right? Uh, we have a, a whole slew of earnings this week, but um, I think a, a couple of things will come out of it. And we will, you know, investors will be, I think, um, asking most defense companies about, you know, what does, what's going on on the Hill in terms of, uh, a potential continuing resolution or otherwise, what's that going to mean? And so on and so forth. I guess, you know, most management teams won't have an answer to it, right? Because they know about as much as what's going on as we do. Uh, but uh, that'll, that'll be a focused topic. Uh, I would imagine for most defense companies uh, into the end of the year, it was probably a pretty darn good quarter. Um, that'll be reflected in, in their numbers in terms of uh, both backlogs. There's been a, a fair amount of order activity and, and revenue and so on and so forth. Uh, and then on the commercial aerospace side, I think there'll be a lot of focus and questions on, you know, the supply chain build rates into the into the into the next year, uh, deliveries, so on and so forth. Uh, and, and then a lot of questions on uh, among the suppliers and the supply base, supply base about you know the challenges facing them, but ultimately what aftermarket growth could be uh, this upcoming year for you know maintenance, repair, overhaul, and spare parts. Um, I think it's going to be a, a bumper year for that particularly with, with China opening. So we'll have a lot more details to talk about uh, next week on the podcast, but um, it should be an action-packed week. In fact, Wednesday, I think we've got like seven companies reporting essentially all on top of each other. So um, we'll know a lot by, by Thursday. Looking forward to having you all back on uh, next week to discuss. Thanks so much for joining us. Hope you guys have a great day, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Uh, great to be here, Vago. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much, Vago. Yeah, thanks, Vago. Great to be on.